Before we begin, mentions and descriptions of death, murder, torture, religious history, and other topics of this nature are included in this episode. Please take care in listening. Girlwise is a safe space to learn and discuss all kinds of topics through anecdotes and evidence-based research. I'm your host, Brenda Nicole, and welcome to Girlwise. Welcome to the Halloween special episode. Today, we're going to be discussing a topic very closely associated with this holiday that perfectly ties in with what this podcast is about, and that is witches. We may think of witches as old, deformed, evil women dressed in black robes and a pointy hat brewing over a cauldron. Or maybe we think of them as victims of horrid, famous witch trials where many were forced to confess under torturous conditions. But why did this craze start and why did it last for hundreds of years? And why were over 80% of the convicted women? Witches have long histories that date back thousands of years. Different iterations of them can be seen throughout almost all cultures and time periods. The way witches are seen, have been persecuted, and deemed evil is reflected by many factors including class, race, and sex. Throughout ancient history, there have been many appearances of the witch. Scholars have identified the Greek goddess Circe as the first witch. She appeared in Homer's Odyssey, where she would lure men into her compound and use a potion to turn them into pigs. Another famous precursor to modern witches is Medea. She is a niece of Circe and granddaughter to the sun god Helios. She sees herself as a high priestess of Hecate, who is the goddess of magic, witchcraft, and the night. And their story is also highly reflective of women's place in society and how they use the prospect of magic to reclaim their power. So if you want to learn more about them, you can read Euripides' Medea. Another famous witch appeared in ancient Rome, where the poet Lucan wrote an account of the civil war that ended the Roman Republic. In Pharsalia, he depicts a thaumaturgic hag as a way to describe the horrors that war brings. She is called Arixo, and she very graphically raises corpses from the dead on the battlefields or cemeteries to learn the outcomes of the war. She is old, untamed, gray-faced, and mutilating the dead. A similar depiction is Horace's image of Canidia and her hags filled with lust who used to dig for bones in the pauper cemetery and killed a child to use his liver for a love potion. Are we starting to see a pattern here? They are, as one article described them, quote, literary tropes that function in different texts to convey ideas about legitimate authority, masculinity, and social order. It goes on to say, images of depraved women cravenly committing infanticide, violating their biological role as mothers, making potions to control men, and violating male prerogative in a patriarchal society indicate more about the fears ancient writers had regarding patriarchal authority and the proper governance of society. End quote. In early Christianity, accusations of magic were used to delegitimize prophets and priests drawing a line between miracle and magic. This way, they could nullify others' religious leaders' powers and beliefs in favors of bishops and leaders of the Catholic Apostolic Church. 
The association between magic and social disruption inspired the first witch hunts. Though most people might assume that the rise of the witch hunting was during the medieval period, it in fact happened after. A time called the Reformation around the 1520s challenged the ideas of the Catholic Church due to exploration, which introduced new ways of thinking and trialed limited worldviews, and capitalism and urbanization disrupted previous familiar social networks. So what to do? Blame the women, of course. They are a minority, held little to no social power at the time, had very rigid social roles, and were deemed of little worth, so of course they would be the easiest to control, hoping that everyone else would fall in line, eventually. The history of witch hunts is quite extensive and gory. I don't really want to include much of the details because not only are there plenty of other podcasts that would do a much better job than I would, but also frankly, describing how they were prosecuted and executed does not add anything of value to the points I'm trying to make. The height of the witch trials was between 1560 and 1630. If you do any research on this topic, a very famous book called Malleus Maleficarum extensively describes why women were more likely to be sinners and seduced by the devil, how to test people to see if they were witches, and how to properly execute them. Basically, a misogynist Bible, which two of the most notable witch hunters used as such. Their names do not deserve to be mentioned. In 1542, England made witchcraft a secular crime by law with the Witchcraft Act. Waves of witch hunts spread all over Europe throughout this time. Most Eastern European countries burned the victims, while in England and the U.S. colonies, they were hanged. Now, you may be thinking, was there anyone with a bit of common sense that was questioning this logic? And the answer is yes. In 1563, Dutch physician Johan Weyer wrote a book called De Prestigis Diamonum. I hope I said that right. In it, he tried to argue that witchcraft was in fact not magic, but maybe due to psychological distress. I want to read the summary about it. It says, One such chronicler of the early modern witch trials was the Dutch physician Johan Weyer, famous for his text The Prestigious Daimonium. In his book, Weyer put that although evil demonic spirits did exist, those held under their power had some kind of behavioral deficit. Weyer used the term melancholy. Thus, he attributed the cause of the witch's behavior not to satanic influence, but to mental illness. He may have been the first physician to do so and employ the term mentally ill. Weyer theorized that many admissions of wild, orgiastic rituals were imagined by those psychologically predisposed to do so, describing such episodes as hallucinary, meaning to let the mind run wild in Latin, symptoms of mental impairment. Weyer recommended that when a person was accused of witchcraft, a physician should be consulted. The shift from the legal to the medical realm demonstrates Weyer's belief that the so-called witches did not have free will or capacity in their behavior and could not be tried, which was an early case of diminished capacity defense. He asserted that the witches' illusions were by their nature unreal and thus the witch could not be tried for them. In his recommendations for the physician's consultation, Johan states that the physician should take a history during the examination and give several case histories of his own. 
In some cases, Weyer appears to advocate psychological management alone and assigns the case of some of these mental illnesses to hallucinogens or an unstable temperament. Thus, Weyer produced and demonstrated a basic framework for physicians to examine the behavior of an unwell patient rather than an organ system and attempted to establish pathological cause beyond superstition. However, the Catholic Church did not take well to Weyer's ideas and had de prestigious daimonium banned. End quote. I mean, of course. In 1682, though, King Louis XIV of France prohibited further witchcraft trials in that country, one of the first countries to do so. Ten years later, though, in 1692, one of the most infamous witch trials happened in the British colonies of Massachusetts called the Salem Witch Trials. There are so many shows, documentaries, videos, and other media on this topic, so I won't go into too much detail about that, but 20 people were murdered in these witch trials in the span of 15 months meaning that several months had several murders. Keep in mind that the population of the Salem town and village was around 2,000. The neighborhood that I live in has around that amount of people, maybe even more. I can't even imagine. Being a woman in that town was basically just spinning a wheel to see if you would survive that month or not. I went to a very old building in Mexico City a few years ago, and at one point, the building was used to hold female prisoners that were accused of witchcraft for the church. The tour guide told us that it was as easy as disliking my neighbor and going to the local priest and telling him that she was a witch. As he was showing us the cells, he told us that the women had a better chance of survival if they confessed to practicing witchcraft and repented for their sins than if they denied it altogether. After you confessed and repented, you were likely to be set free because their ultimate goal was to convert and control. You were giving in to Catholicism regardless of what you did or didn't do, and you were proving them correct that these witches did exist. And from then on, you were going to be as religious as you could possibly be in order for your life to be spared. And maybe from the fear, trauma, and shock, you would encourage your entire family to do the same, and maybe even police other women in fear that they could have the same outcome or for you to not be tried again, and bam, their plans had worked. Within this context, accusations of witchcraft offered plausible solutions to people's problems. If a poor neighbor asked for bread, the guilt of denying her might be astigated by accusing her of witchcraft. If science was challenging belief that God exists, torturing a woman into falsely confessing she had sex with a demon might offer tangible proof for the existence of supernatural beings. Women who challenged male authority might garner an accusation of witchcraft, as could women suspected of sexual immorality. Witch hunting functioned as a method of social control that sought to channel female behavior into certain acceptable molds." But where did the look of what we think of today as a witch come from? Well, here we get into a little bit of art history, a Brittany Broski moment, if you will. One of the oldest depictions of modern witches was made by German artist Albrecht Dürer. Today, he is referenced as one of the masters of arts for his revolutionary works at the time. In 1497, he made an engraving that is now named The Four Witches, that depicted four young, beautiful, naked women. 
They are gathered, seemingly in a circle, in a version of a bathhouse. In the corner of the piece, there is some sort of horned demon peeping into the scene, holding a hunting object engulfed in flames that is said to represent temptation. There is a human skull on the floor in between the feet of the middle woman and a long bone to the right side. Though the artist never stated what it was about or if the women were actually witches, it is still closely associated with the topic. In the year 1500 came his second work called Witch Riding Backwards on a Goat, depicting the images of this character much more gruesome with the also naked woman being of a much older age, skin more wrinkled, mouth agape, seemingly yelling, and her hair disheveled and blowing in the opposite direction of her travel, maybe suggesting her magic powers. She also has a broomstick in her hand. This inspired rapidly horrible depictions of women as witches, each time making them appear more evil, closer tied to the devil, and an image of defiance as the height of the witch trials happened in Europe. The invention of the printing press was able to make these images widespread. Now, is an image of the witch a feminist icon? Generally, representations of witches in film position the witch as someone who is pushed out of or chooses to exist outside of the norm, and sometimes this removal from society results in her death or punishment, or it results in her absolute liberation, or perhaps both. Witches, then, are perceived by many feminists and people who have felt othered as symbols of actualization, self-empowerment, and self-love. Witches are people who transcend the binaries and the oppressive forces that hold them down. Although some are punished for this self-removal from society, in these narratives, the idea that one might have the chance of escaping oppressive forces, even momentarily, is enough to inspire any person who has felt the damaging effects of marginalization. End quote. The article goes on to state that though this image sounds very appealing, in reality, not all marginalized communities have the ability to access such power to transcend their hardships. There is also the question of whether or not there is good magic versus bad magic and how the use of it reflects on who you are as a person. Of course, using the power against the people who want to control you is bad, but using it on people for the controlling party's benefit is good. Using the movie The Craft and the AHS Coven series, the author goes on to say that even in the modern representation of witches, the idea that class informs morality still stands strong, as in both of these examples, the poor witch doesn't stand a chance against the powers of the good, high-society, rich white witch. It seems that even now, female power is still bound by the rigid views of human categorization. In 1735, the Witchcraft Act finally made it a crime for a person to claim that any human being had magical powers or was guilty of practicing witchcraft. The law abolished the hunting and executions of witches in Great Britain. Hilariously, the maximum penalty sent out by the act was a year's imprisonment, which means that you could still kill and hunt witches, you just get a year in prison. Many European countries followed suit pretty soon after. I found a list of all of the notable recorded people accused and murdered and seeing their names and how many confessed under torture made everything seem much more real. It spans from 323 BC and it ends 
in April of 2021. Witch hunting is not a thing of the past. Historian Wolfgang Beringer says that from 1960 to today, around 20,000 to 40,000 people were murdered in Tanzania alone for this reason. Though I do want to say that this is an opinion, though from an educated person, still an estimate. Witchcraft is not illegal in the country, but local villages still deem those people should be killed. Other places like Zambia and Ghana still kill women to this day who have children with birth defects, stating that they are consequences of witchcraft. In 2011, while Julia Gillard was running for prime minister in Australia, a race she won, a popular slogan used against her was ditch the witch as a jab at her looks and a way to discredit her by using the old haggard looks of historical witches trying to make her seem unappealing in every way possible. In my own family, my grandmother still to this day uses the term as a way to diminish people she doesn't like by making them seem inherently evil and therefore invalid. To a lot of people, using the term witch as an insult or an accusation still holds a lot of social power. When I reflect back on this, I think it's funny that the things that people did in order to prevent this from happening only encouraged it and maybe even provoked it. Because though at the peak of witch hunting, the majority of the people accused and acquitted weren't actually practicing hocus pocus magic with cauldrons, because of the widespread image and misinformation, that is exactly what some self-proclaimed witches are doing now. Today, modern Wicca magic has become capitalized into a billion-dollar industry. Now, there is an argument to be made that we are now capitalizing on centuries of wrongful prosecution, torture, and the murder of tens of thousands of women. And though little can be done to stop corporate witchcraft, its commercialization has allowed modern witches to prosper financially. It also helps to begin accepting witchcraft and hopefully stop the hatred from fear. Now, do I believe in magic? No. The more I truly learn about science and history, the less and less afraid of the world I become as my Catholic upbringing taught me. Maybe this is why people have been heavily censoring education in the last couple of years. But anyways, I think that there is no such thing as magic, only science that we haven't yet discovered, which in itself can be magical. After all of this research, however, I have found that fear is one of the greatest weapons of mass control available to mankind. Widespread fear has been the main tactic of taking over societies and their rulings for all of recorded history. From the infernos of the churches to the killings of the Aztecs, it has been proven time and time again that it works. So now, instead of being afraid, I just learn as much as I can about a topic and take it from there. At least, at that point, if it really is scary, then I have some knowledge of what can be done about it because I'd rather be scared and educated than scared and ignorant. The latter will end human civilization. And that is it for this topic, you guys. I really hope that you enjoyed it. I, of course, excluded a lot. There's so many things that can be said about this. I probably did around 30 hours of research and there are so many other things that I would love to get into. But 
you know, time constraints and actual like exhaustion <laughs> from researching and writing this episode just didn't allow me. But with that being said, it's time for Ask Me Anything, the ending segment of the podcast where you can ask me literally anything. Today's question is, what are you going to be for Halloween? Thank you so much for your question. Uh, I didn't, I chose this question before I finished writing this episode, but obviously after learning so much about the topic, I definitely do think I'm going to be a witch for Halloween. And just an homage to even being able to wear something like that and just exist in the world as a woman is a testament to how far we've come from then. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you want to send in a question, you could do so by sending an email at girlwisepod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, follow it, rate and review, and I will see you next week. Happy Halloween, everyone! Bye.